Hi, this is Ron Gilbert, and welcome to the weekly Thimbleweed Park podcast. And today we're going to be doing our Friday questions. So we're not going to do the normal uh, stand-up meeting. We talk about uh, what we did last week and what we're going to do next week. It's probably good because last week was um, Thanksgiving, so I don't think uh, we did too much. And this week, David is going to be asking all the questions. Go, David. Okay. Well, the first question is from Tony. I'm wondering if Thimbleweed Park is the town which the original Maniac Mansion took place. And if so, will the mansion be included in the background of the game? It seems like a lot of references to the game that got me addicted to point-and-click games. Um, the answer to that is it is not exactly the town that Maniac Mansion took place in. However, if you consider the universe that Maniac Mansion took place in, which was created by Ron and David and myself, and since Ron and David and myself are still working pretty much within the same universe together, I think I think I, it's not a stretch to believe that we're certainly in the same world. Uh, we may be, you know, a few uh, towns down the way, but there are a lot of references to characters and situations from the original Maniac Mansion. Uh, as well as Zach McCracken and Monkey Island and the games that we did pretty much together. But certainly uh, Maniac Mansion was the first game the three of us did together. And this game is, um, you know, we reunited on this and we are definitely working with that same sensibility. So I feel that we're very much, I'm going to say, in a similar place. And there is indeed a mansion in Thimbleweed Park, but it's not the Maniac Mansion, Edison Mansion. You know, when I was a kid, I was... I was totally obsessed with whether different TV shows took places in the same universes or not. It was just one of those weird things that I, I wanted to know, you know, did did like chips and the love boat happen in the same universe? It's just it's what I wanted to know when I was a kid. There was weird crossovers between some of those things, but I can't really remember them. It just yeah. because, you know. Yeah, and I was always excited when there was. I was always excited when there was a TV show crossover because then I knew that they took place in the same universe. Knight Rider pulled up to Mary Tyler Moore's house. <laughs> I think I missed that one. Yeah, I remember this design doc at Lucas where we had the idea that all the games would be or were in the same universe. Um so that kind of enabled us to do a lot of crossover little bits there. Um, it didn't make a lot of sense, obviously. But There's a thing I read recently about how all of Quentin Tarantino's movies take place in the same universe. And they've actually done you know, quite a bit of you know, work tying little things. And I think that happens you know, for any creator because you, do, you have these subtle similarities or you know, I think in the case of Thimbleweed Park, you know, there there is a lot of you know Maniac Mansion stuff and some Monkey Island stuff, but it's all it's all little references, little homages, you know, that we that we play to the other stuff that you know makes them feel like maybe they're all taking place in the same universe. But I don't think consciously they are. I think it's all subconscious. The next one is from Matthias Cedarball. Will Mark Ferrari TM write a blog post anytime soon? Um, the answer to that is Mark has promised, Mark TM has promised to um, do something. And the thing that's interesting about Mark is Mark actually is a writer. I don't know if people out there know it, but he's, he's actually a published novelist. He wrote a book called The Book of Joby that was published a few years ago. Interesting read. And I know he had planned to maybe write a sequel to that. And I believe this weekend he actually is at a writer's workshop. So maybe when he gets back, since there was a number of people asking this question, I'm going to sort of lean on him and twist his arm to get him to do it. He has indicated he will, but it's just a matter of, you know, pinning him down. And so this helps me go ahead and try to pin him down some more about that. But I expect that will happen sometime soon. 
The next two questions are kind of related. First one is from Marky. Do you guys see yourselves making any more point-and-click adventure games once Thimbleweed Park is finished? And from Valdir, what are your expectations for after the game release in terms of copies or licenses sold, if any? In other words, what will make you consider the game a success? The big question about are you going to do more of these, it gets asked a lot. It gets asked a lot on the web, and people ask me in person that question quite a bit. And I think it really just comes down to whether Bumbleweed Park is successful or not. If if nobody buys the game, then I don't know that it's necessarily worth you know doing more of them. But if a whole lot of people you know really like what we're doing, then certainly we'll we'll do more. You know, and it does tie into the second question. I mean, it's I don't know that we have a specific number in mind in, in terms of copies that we'd like. We would like I think we'd like to make enough money that we can make another one. You know, that's 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 really our goal with all this. I don't I don't know that we would necessarily do another, you know, another Kickstarter. People who do follow-up Kickstarters often have a really hard time unless the games were really successful, which is kind of a weird double-edged sword because if the game is super successful, then you probably don't need the Kickstarter. So, you know, I don't I don't know that I have a concrete answer to that question in terms of units and stuff. I mean, certainly in terms of the sensibility of whether or not we'll make more of these, I will say, at least from my perspective, I've I probably enjoyed doing this with you guys more than anything else I've done in a long time, and I'd like to keep doing that if, as Ron said, the financial results justify that. But I'd rather do this than go back to say just freelancing or you know consulting or something like that. I'd rather make more of these definite. Yeah, and for me, I'm right now so focused on doing the game that I'm not even thinking beyond this point. Yeah, that's that that is very true with games. It's like I I get so into it, I just have no idea what I'm doing next, you know, because my brain is just completely occupied. If there was some, you know, marketing person in this company and said, "Okay, what's next on your slate?" and you have to have all that stuff planned out for the next 5 years, it might be different, but there isn't. So, I also know how burned out you can get from doing game. We we're not really in what I would call crunch mode at this point, but that could easily change when we get towards release. And, you know, when that finishes, you may not want to even think about doing another game for a period of time. Okay, next question is from Cole Trickle. Why is it always night in your games, at least in the beginning? The answer to that is, um, at least in terms, certainly in terms of, of Thimbleweed Park, and we can talk a little bit about, you know, Ron can talk about Monkey Island or whatever, but relative to, to Thimbleweed Park, since we were doing this for the first time in many years, we really wanted something that was as atmospheric as possible. And generally speaking, when you're doing things, especially the 2D type of graphics we're doing right now, I think the atmospheric look at it at, um, I'm going to say it's sort of dusk or early evening is much more interesting than in the middle of the day. It's just the way the light works. Certainly working with Mark too, the stuff in the early evening looks a lot more impressive to me. It's a lot more interesting, dramatic, and beautiful. So that's certainly my response to that question. Next question is from Wamu Tambambu Tumbo. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> I was wondering how you were going to pronounce that name. Yeah, I've been practicing. <laughs> Wamu Tambambu Tambo Smith. I have a question for them. Is, uh, you know, that, is that the name that they use just for this, or is that their real handle? <laughs> Gary, have you faced an inventory icon that was just too hard to draw or looked so bad as a handful of pixels that it had to be nixed from the game completely and a puzzle reworked? What is your icon nemesis? 
Um, the answer to that is I've never actually had an icon that we couldn't somehow figure out how to represent in the game so that we could go ahead and, and build a credible puzzle using that as the um, icon for it. However, I will say relative to creating icons, at least certainly for Thimbleweed Park, um, there's sort of a class, I'm going to say, of icons that we have a lot of, and it becomes, I think, a real job to sort of figure out how to craft those so they feel differently enough. And what I'm talking about is there's a whole bunch of sort of papers in the game that are either notes or books or receipts or um, things like that. And so it becomes a problem when you have, I, I feel, when you have all these sort of rectangular pieces of paper that in real life look kind of similar and you're sitting there trying to sort of create a representation in 35 by 20 pixels that look, I'm going to use the word, different enough from each other that really feel like you have um, a representation where people can actually understand the difference between these things. So I find that kind of a challenge. I'm finding it a challenge with this because a laundry list and a, you know, I'm going to say a note to somebody and a combination to something all look kind of the same. And you have to sort of really try to mix them up. And that's not just, you know, different colored papers, although some of that's part of it. You really need to try to figure out how to render those in a way that people can actually tell the difference between them. So that would be what I, how I would answer that. Nick Tashiro, making a video game can be a grueling task, both mentally and physically. How do you keep yourselves healthy and sane throughout the brutal gauntlet of development? Or don't you? Yeah, I think the answer to that is, is or don't you? Actually, I find game development uh, a respite, given the fact that I have four children and a wife and two dogs. I just <laughs> want to get the hell away from them and go work on the game. So. <laughs> So games are how you keep yourself mentally That's actually, and physically. this game is how I keep my sanity. Well, we have a dog, so that can't, the dog doesn't understand deadlines um, unless you want to spend time cleaning up messes in the house. So you have to, for my case, you know, take walks every day. Um, it's just part of it. I think, on the other hand, sleep deprivation becomes an issue when I just don't have enough time to do everything. Sushi asks, did you plan for a C64 version when you started work on Monkey Island or Indy 3? Put differently, why did you abandon the C64 platform for scum-based games in just months after releasing Zack? My inner child is still crying over that. Here's your chance to do some healing. I think the reason that, well, I know the reason that we abandoned the C64 was just that that platform at least in the u.s was starting to die and the pc platform was was really gaining a lot of steam at that time and we could do so much more on the pc than we could on the c64 and it just it just didn't make sense anymore to have to do you know multiple versions of the games when the future was clearly on the pc stuff i also think i remember something with indie in that we had a really tight schedule because we had to get the game completed around the time the film launched and it gave us like six months. I think one of the things we might have negotiated at the time was that we might be able to pull it off if we dropped the C64 as a platform. Oh yeah, I do remember that actually. Yeah, it was just so much harder to shoehorn something into the C64 and with the, with the PC, some of those limitations were gone. I mean, certainly when we first started doing games, we, we first started developing on the Atari I mean, I know David probably remembers that more because our first deal was with Atari. And then we went to the C64 and then we went to the IBM PC. 
And I remember when we were developing Maniac, we were doing it on the C64 ROM, and you started developing um, a Monkey that was on the IBM, right? Yeah, that was on the PC. So did we ever, after we left the C64 platform, do any conversions back to the C64? Or we just kind of left it and kept going? Yeah, we, we left it. By that time, it had really died. I mean, it was starting to die, you know, at the end of Zach. You know, it just it just really wasn't worth it wasn't worth you know, backporting. I mean, the things like the Amiga had really kind of taken up where the 664 was, you know, and we were porting to the Amiga and all, and all of those games. So it just didn't make sense to do the C64 anymore. Andreas asks, when the character moves further away from the camera, its sprite size needs to change at some point to reflect the distance. How do you determine how many and which smaller versions of a character you need? In other words, is there an ideal sprite height distance function in the world of pixel art? Well, we don't really have different size characters when the character scales. We have one size character, which is the you know the full size character, and then it's scaled down as you know as the character moves um, back into the distance. And even the old Scum games did the same thing. The first game that really had scaling, um, I think, was was Monkey Island, and there really was only kind of one size Guybrush, and as he moved back. Um, you know he's he's scaled, so there really is one thing one one size of the characters. The only exception is you know in Monkey Island and also in Thimbleweed Park there are some kind of overhead view screens and we do use different characters for those. We have you know a very small itty bitty size. There was one of Guybrush and there's you know itty bitty sizes of the characters in Thimbleweed for those. But normal normal uh, screens the it's just the original art that's scaling. Remember in Zach I think we did the same thing we had. I think we had the normal size characters, and then there was a maybe a four pixel tall character for some long shots. Carlo Valenti asks, "Are you going to answer this question?" And my answer to that is no. But you did. You did answer it. <laughs> yeah, you did answer it. Did yeah. You? So no, it's a no. no. So it really is yes. You you yes you are going to answer this question. It's like Captain Kirk saying to the computer, you know, everything <laughs> I say is a lie, and then the computer like you know starts freaking out and blows up. You know? Yeah, yeah. Carlo's not in a good place right now. <laughs> Poor Carlo. Zach Phoenix McCracken asks. Question about, quote, the greatest game of all time, Zach McCracken and the Alien Mind Eater. Oh, you really answers. wanted to answer this question just because yeah, it said greatest game of all time. David has you? no ego issue at all. <laughs> <laughs> um, so question about the greatest game of all times, Zach McCracken and the Alien Mind Eater's TM. I discovered some Easter eggs and he lists a bunch. Do you remember other Easter eggs I could have missed during these years? And yeah, there's a whole bunch in all of our games in this one too. And there's a great website, which is zach-site.com slash fun.htm is a page that has all these Easter eggs. Or just go to zach-site.com for some really great Zach stuff. The greatest game of all time, I want to add. It is. I think that's the, I think we have that URL too. Yeah, I, think, I, think, I think Lucasfilm peaked with Zach. Yeah, it was kind of all downhill after that. Hopefully, Thimbleweed Park will supplant its supremacy. <laughs> that way, we'll, we'll make another one of the damn things. Well, Thimbleweed Park, the second greatest game of all time. <laughs> Charles asks if you're already going to be making a mobile port and an Xbox version, 
Could you pretty please port the controller support from the Xbox version in the mobile versions? Yeah, well, we're definitely going to do that. Um, same thing with the PC version. Uh, you know, all the codes there, and the, and the code isn't you know specifically in the Xbox version. We just have the controller version of the UI, and you know, I suppose if people want to do that on the PC, they can. I would imagine I haven't specifically done controller support on um, iOS. You know, I've looked at all the APIs, and it doesn't seem that difficult. So I don't, I don't see any reason why we couldn't support it on those platforms. Marcel Elman asks. Out of curiosity, but since they will be mandatory for the Xbox One version, have you guys given any deeper thought into the achievements? Are you planning for any nasty, secret, hard to attain ones? Yeah, I don't know that the achievements are actually required on the Xbox One anymore. I know they're required on the 360, but I think they kind of I think they dropped some of those constraints. I could be wrong about that. But yeah, we, we will have achievements. I mean, I'm not a big fan of achievements. I don't, you know, when I play a game, I really don't care about the achievements at all. But I know a lot of people do care about them. So we definitely will have achievements. And somebody else had asked uh, in one of the other, uh, in the comments on one of the other blog posts about whether we were going to, you know, only do super obscure hard achievements, which I had mentioned much earlier or whether we're going to do you know normal ones like you know you completed the first act and all that and yeah i mean we we will do those those standard ones but i think in general achievement should be things that are you know interesting or clever that players have done to complete but yeah there will be achievement and i imagine that will be the same thing for the steam version i mean once we've done the work to do achievements on one platform you might as well just do them on them on all of them brian ref asks if money was not an object, who would your dream voice actors be for Thimbleweed Park? Uh, yeah, that's a that's an interesting question. You know, I don't I don't really think about voice. You know, as some people, you know, when they're writing, they're you know they imagine characters, and I I just don't you know in terms of actors when I do stuff, and I'm not I'm not a big fan personally of you know I guess what I call stunt casting. You know, where you go out and you get some uh, you know popular star to to do your voice. So, you know, you know, more for marketing and PR reasons than anything. So I don't, you know, I don't really know who would be the voice yet for the game. I don't have anyone in mind when I'm writing dialogue either. And sometimes I've had that experience where you, like back when we were doing dialogue for indie, you know, that was just really clear because we had, we had the actor and we knew who it was. And we could just picture what he would say, even though there was no voice then for the first, first indie game. Well, I do, you know, I, I guess I do imagine in my head what they sound like, you know, when I'm writing Ransom, I can hear him in my head, but I don't, I don't know that I, you know, I equate him with a, you know, oh, I wish Ransom could be played by this particular actor. In some ways, I find that a little bit distracting, you know, it's like when I'm playing a game and, you know, it's Patrick Stewart's voice doing this stuff, all I can think is, you know, that that's Captain Picard, you know, it, it, in some ways, it's if it, I find it a little bit distracting more than I do anything. There are so many great voice actors that, that aren't like known as stars that you don't think you have to go that route. Well, the other thing, this is more like doing an animated cartoon than it is like doing a real movie where you're casting it with real actors. So I do think it tends to have sort of, I'm going to use the word, you kind of think of the stereotypical type of person that it would be. And at least in my mind, that's generally not a specific actor. That's more this kind of character, which is sort of what Ron said. But, you know, in animated movies, you, know, you look at like a, a Pixar movie comes out and it's there's it's always filled with 
big name stars. I mean, are they are they doing that simply for marketing and PR reasons, or are they doing that because those people really are just absolutely perfect for the role? I think it's both, honestly. I think that you know, a company like Pixar is really good at casting, but the other thing is, is it does help um, those kinds of you know big you know, release movies that have kind of that, you know, feel the Pixar feel to them that they sort of establish that kind of, uh, you know, style with. So, so, so who would we get if we, who if, would if, we, yeah, it's like if, if we wanted to go that route of having a star studded voice cast, like who would, who, who would we get? Jeez. Uh, I have no idea. <laughs> you know, Patrick Stewart, Sean Connery, and the guy from the Glad Bag commercial. I don't. Oh yeah, those would be my three top picks too. <laughs> I don't even know if it was a Glad Bag. <laughs> well, we have our cast. So Sean Connery is just is Agent Ray, and Patrick Stewart <laughs> is Agent Reyes, yeah. and the Glad Bag guy is Ransom. Makes all the sense in the world. Yeah. No, I'm gonna. I'm definitely gonna think about the dialogue very differently now. Orkin, I'm sorry, Orkin, I may pronounce your last name wrong. Orkin Agitbol, Agitbol. Orkin Agitbol, or is it Ajit? <laughs> hey, Orkin, I want to know, what were your favorite C64 games other than the ones you made? And what made them your favorite? For me, by far, my favorite C64 game was a game called Jumpman. And that was, you know, I played that before I started at Lucasfilm, and I remember Jumpman specifically because it was the first game that I I disassembled. You know, I I got my disassembler and and I took that game apart trying to figure out, you know, how they did the graphics and um, they were using compression. You know, it was kind of the first time that I had really been exposed to compression. So I just I found it really interesting how all the graphics were compressed and stuff. So I think I think that was oddly enough my probably my one of my favorite C sixty four games. Farge TV asks. Now that you're past the middle of the project and the work is shifting more and more towards fixing bugs, polishing, planning, and handling distribution and other mundane tasks, do you ever feel, if only for a few seconds, an urge to just abandon the project, just leave everything and go into the creative phase of another project? Yeah, I think the answer to that question is yes, all the time. I just, I'm, I'm, I'm constantly feeling that, and I've always felt that. I mean, every project I've worked on, there's, there's this kind of point where you do hit that, that drudgery phase, and you know, the, the fun, creative part is over. I go to this meetup every, um, every couple of weeks. Uh, it's a prototyping meetup where everybody just brings the prototypes that they're working on, and you know, we share them and talk about them and. And I'm I'm always I'm always wanting to be there with my prototype. You know, I I leave that meeting going, gosh, I wish I had the time, you know, to do a little prototype game. So, yeah, I I think I do I do it a lot, but it it never it never causes me to abandon the project ever. I guess you know the grass is always greener on the other side. I mean, I will say that in the case of Thimbleweed, um, I still feel like although we're in production. Ron and I and David have enough creative control over this that um, there's still enough interesting things coming up. I kind of feel that it's not maybe as uh, compelling as the first conceptual stage of a game, but there continues to be ongoing stuff happening that keep me interested in this. So, you know, I haven't been feeling like, you know, I want to give it up or anything like that. that. That hasn't, you know, crossed my brain yet. 
ask me, you know, in another couple of months. Yeah, just just wait until all of the creating is done and it's just bug fixing. Yeah. You know, months and months and months of just fixing bugs. Yeah, Ron telling me to like draw this icon again and again and again. Too many pixels, Gary. Too many <laughs> pixels. For me, it's we're definitely not into that mundane stage yet. It's no, still, not yet. It's still really even fixing bugs is wildly creative sometimes because it's it's kind of like this um, huge jigsaw puzzle or problem you're trying to solve. Like, why is this not working? And then you sometimes you brainstorm with someone else, like, why does this work this way but not work that way? And the frustration to payoff ratio is such that it's still really fun. Felix asks, were the classic adventures also developed using the sprint method? And if yes, what did the respective sprints consist of? For example, was Monkey Island 1 created by finalizing one island completely before starting work on the next? Yeah, we didn't use the sprint method back at uh, back at Lucasfilm. I don't think it really even was a thing. I think I think the sprint and agile development is a, a fairly new creation, at least in software. So we didn't really use those. With Monkey Island, we really just kind of did everything at once. I think we used that. I think it was the marathon method. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the death march method. Yeah, we just we just kind of worked on all sorts of things all at once, and it was true for Maniac Mansion as well. You know, I don't remember any any rhyme or reason for that. You know, for that stuff and what we worked on and the order for things that that went into it. So yeah, so I think it's it is definitely new. It's a new thing we didn't do back then. I mean, didn't you like sort of develop? At, at, at Humongous when you were working on games there, kind of, or? No, we didn't really use a sprint method at Humongous. We used, we used a method, method where we would create the entire game in this, you know, black and white storyboard version and play through the game and iron out all the details while it was in this rough black and white art before we'd go on and we do the color stuff. Because at Humongous, uh, you know, after the first uh, couple of Puppet games, it was all hand-drawn art, and and it wasn't hand-drawn in Photoshop. It was literally hand-drawn on paper, and it was extremely time-intensive to do that stuff, and so we really needed to make sure that we were right about stuff, that we weren't throwing out things because of the work, and that's you know how we adopted that. But that's different than the sprint. Than the sprint. That's more like wireframing, I guess. Yeah, that's what we did with our wireframing. Peter asks, perhaps a dull question, but I'm curious. What TV shows are you guys watching at the moment? And I got to just say that I just finished watching Jessica Jones on Netflix. And this for me was like one of the best TV shows I've seen ever. And I just loved it. Better than, better than The Love Boat? Um, well, yeah, probably better than Love Boat. Love Boat didn't have like superhero killing and stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it was something about it just got me on a whole bunch of different levels. And I thought the writing was brilliant and acting was was first rate. And I'm um, sp speaking of multiple things being in the same universe. You know, it's part of the Marvel universe, but specifically, there's a Netflix Marvel universe now too, with um, Daredevil and, and other ones coming up soon. Yeah, they're going to make a Luke Cage series, and right. they're finally, I think, going to end up with the Defenders or something. If you know right. about Mar Marvel comics, you know more about that stuff. Right. We're gonna combine them, but if you get Netflix, then definitely watch that. 
I think the shows that I'm watching right now, I think I'm on like the third season of Game of Thrones. So I'm I'm way behind in that. And I'm also just like on the fourth season of Walking Dead. So I'm behind on those, but I still like them. The one new show that I'm watching uh, right now is The Man in the High Castle, which is on uh, Amazon, I believe. And that's based on the Philip K. Dick book. Which I which I had read like a year earlier, so that's kind of fun. I'm not really sure where the shows. I've only seen the first episode of it. I'm not really sure where the show's going to go because I can't imagine that they're going to follow the book that closely because I don't think I don't think the book would make a successful TV show. So I'm I'm kind of curious where they go with that, but it's it's kind of interesting. I don't I don't think I've read the I never read the book. I'm about three episodes. And yeah. on that three or four in, I'm watching this based on a recommendation from Fresh Air podcast or radio show. Uh, also, Game of Thrones and Walking Dead, although I'm current on those. I'm watching all the same family-related shows that you guys are watching. Um, other than the only other thing that I'm watching that's not on your list is The Blacklist, which I enjoy. Uh, I think I saw one one episode of that when it first I, came I think out. James Spader is really interesting in that. Yeah, I'm up on that one, too. I'm yeah. watching too much TV. If I weren't watching <laughs> a TV show, we'd have a game finished by now. <laughs> yeah. Good to know. Ron's just going to gonna like, you know, cancel our cable and Netflix. <laughs> Tobias asks, how much time per day week do you actually spend on a game? Speaking of, <laughs> yeah. I usually get caught in how much time do you spend watching TV? I usually get caught up in my work because it's fun and I actually like what I do. And then I put away, I put way more hours than I should. I probably spend 10 hours a day, six days a week. I try not to work weekends, but I usually do end up working either Saturday or Sunday or a few hours, you know, each of those days. But I'm usually working at least 10 hours a day. I get up really early. I get up at 530 in the morning go take the dog out quickly and then i you know i try to get to work and i usually you know end up working uh you know until around seven or so so probably 10 or 11 hours a day um i tend to work from like eight to five but i do that on saturday and sunday as well the thing that i do know is when we get into crunch mode i kind of want to pace myself now a little bit because i know that when we're in crunch mode we're going to be working basically around the clock the other thing is, is that and I certainly know this from Ron's perspective, whatever we need to do, we put in the hours to do that. If we're working on a sprint and it has to be done by, you know, uh, the end of the month and we're, you know, a week out from that, we'll work as many hours as we need to to achieve that goal. Yeah, I think one of the things that sprint is good for is that it creates these little mini crunch modes rather than one giant, you know, four or five month crunch mode at the end of the project, you know, you get these these little ones, you know, at the end of every month. And hopefully we won't be doing ridiculous crunch because I don't I don't think crunch is intrinsically good. I mean, I think focus is good and I think it's, you know, it's good that people are putting in the time. But, you know, crunch mode is just I think it burns you out and you end up not doing good work in the process. So, you know, hopefully our crunch mode will consist of maybe the last month of the project you know, that we're killing ourselves and not the last four months of the project. Yeah, yeah, certainly at Lucasfilm, I remember when we were in crunch mode, we just basically lived there. I'm sure a lot of people who worked at other game companies, they just lived there. And, you know, you come in and like, there'd be a bunch of guys laying around on the floor who hadn't showered for like a week with like pizza boxes, you know, in the room. And you go, uh, oh God, these guys must be in crunch mode. I remember not shaving for nine months when I was working on Zach because I figure I'd save about five minutes a day and <laughs> get done you know, a few days earlier. I'm probably putting in about 30, 32 hours a week right now on average. 
primarily because I have a couple other things that I had to finish up from 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 the last couple of years. Um, so that should clear up pretty soon. Topper says, Thimbleweed Park is a journey into the past of graphical adventure gaming, but the genre has not really changed a great deal in recent times. How do you think adventure game creators can bring innovation to the adventure game experience rather than, rather than just through new storylines? That's a really good question. It's it's one of those questions that I think about a lot myself with things. You know, Thimbleweed Park, we very specifically are are building, you know, a classic point and click game. We're very consciously not, you know, trying to innovate on a lot of different things. We're, you know, trying to do the interface the same way that we did and the game design, you know, being very similar to the way that we did things back then, you know, because that's, you know, that is what we're doing. Just in terms of, of doing a brand new graphic adventure where we didn't have those constraints, I think the innovation is really important. And I, th I think it's one of those things that in the game world, people like innovation. They're not just looking for a new story in their games. They are looking for new gameplay and you know a new way to approach the game and new things to really try to figure out. And not, not just different puzzles, but a new way of dealing with that stuff. You know, I, I don't know that the game business can kind of support that forever. You know, there's some point where you've, you know, you've, you've done a lot of stuff and you do need to just, you know, have these genres and deal with them. You know, I don't really know if I was going to tackle an adventure game that was a completely modernized adventure game, you know, exactly how, how I would do that and the things that I would do in that. Red Phantom asks, was there ever a room that the library staircase in Maniac Mansion led to? I've always wondered what could have been up there. Yeah, there was. I mean, there was the whole second floor of the library. I'm surprised that people didn't see that. It was on the third disc that came with Maniac Mansion. Yeah, I, I believe the chainsaw gas was in that room. Right, yeah. I think yeah. that, you know, what else was up there? Yeah, there was that book in the library that was, you know, if I made a game about pirates, this is what the secret would be. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. That book was, that up, was there up there as well. Yeah, yeah I, I don't know why people, um, I don't know why nobody's seen the upper floor of the library. We spent a lot of time testing it and building it and everything. And the last question for today is from Mark. Will there be snow this winter? I certainly hope so. I really want to go skiing. Uh, there'll be snow somewhere. Well, I just went up to see my mom for Thanksgiving, and they, they have snow. They had a lot of snow up there. That was kind of fun. Okay. Well, that was exciting. <laughs> wow, we, we ended on a real hot question. Didn't yeah. we? <laughs> it feels to me like that. this is maybe the long. This would be, if you, Ron didn't edit the, the crap out of this, this feels like it might be the longest podcast we've done. I could be wrong about that, but it seemed like it just kind of dr dragged on and on. All right, I guess we're done. We should probably end it a little bit better. Oh, oh I didn't think we, you were still recording. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm still recording. <laughs> oh, okay. We, we then, haven't done the outro stuff. Uh, okay, then then we better do that and forget about what we just did. Okay. So why don't, why don't you say, why don't, David, why don't you say that it's, you know, that's the end of the questions. Okay. So that's the end of the questions for this month. And definitely look forward to ask, answering more questions next month. Yeah, these are fun. I yeah. really like doing these. Yeah. All right. Well, I will talk to you two later. Okay. Okay. Bye. See you in Fenway Park. And we're we're out now, right? We're done. Okay. All right. Okay. Talk to you guys later.